So in our house, we have a few routines that we do, especially with small kids that we just try to be on purpose about in order to share our values and teach our kids some things that are important to us. Uh, and we just want to make sure that they're part of everything that we do. So uh, there's a number of things. One of them that we do, uh, it's just a real simple thing, but every time we sit down to a meal together, we pray before we eat with our kids. And uh, as they're small, one of the things that we did is uh, as we were going to pray before the meal, we started all teaching the kids just to focus a little bit. So close your eyes and to hold hands. There's just four of us. And so we hold hands, helps us to focus and we're all together and we say a quick prayer and then we eat. But we do it every single meal. So it's very a big rhythm for us and our kids are going to get it. And hopefully that's just part of, of helping them understand uh, how to implement prayer in different aspects uh, of their life and, and all, the, all that kind of thing. Just an important value for us and something that we do. Now I've noticed that as our kids are starting to get just a little bit older, and they're out of the house a little bit more, they're going to other people's houses, they're going to their friends' houses, they're realizing that not everybody has the same rhythms that we do. And so where we do this all the time, all of a sudden, our kids are noticing that if I go to my friend's house and we have dinner with them, I sit down to dinner with them, they don't necessarily pray, and they'll come back and say, hey, Dad, did you know I went to, do you know they don't pray before dinner? They just start eating. So I'm picturing, like, my seven-year-old son going over to his friend's house and it's time for dinner and they all sit down and he goes <laughs> and they're all eating and he's like what's happening but then you have these cute little conversations where he comes back and he says oh I just noticed they didn't they didn't pray before they eat and we go oh yeah okay well that's because that's one of our values one of our rhythms but it's not how everybody else does it and you go dad and I, I don't even think they go to church on Sunday and we go again okay these are good opportunities for us just to talk through that just because we do certain things not everybody does certain things and then they're asking well why wouldn't they and shouldn't they do that and and all these little conversations because this is the first time they're kind of realizing that we don't do the same thing everybody else does or everybody else doesn't do what we do there's all kinds of different ways of living and so that's an opportunity for us to talk about why we do the things we do and what's important to us but then also just to acknowledge not everybody's going to be the same way and so when we're at somebody else's house we're going to respect the way that they do things and uh, just acknowledge it doesn't have to be the way that we do it and that's okay and so we have those conversations just the difference a little bit about what it's like in our house where where we kind of say this is what's important to us and this is how we live that out but then going somewhere else and realizing that this isn't where we get to set the the rhythms and and the traditions and the different things that's what they get to do and so we can learn a little bit about who they are and be respectful uh, and then come home and, and do what we do today we're in our last series uh, last uh, teaching week on our series of Judge Not. We've been talking about uh, judgment and when we're supposed to judge and when we're not supposed to judge and how we're supposed to do those things. And today, I want to talk a little bit about uh, our family of faith and how we might think differently about how we treat one another as a family, as a, a family of faith, and then how we might think about those who are outside of the faith, outside of the church, because we might have the same kind of conversations that we have with our kids where we would say, hey, there's certain things that are really important to us that we do, but also what do we do when we go to places where people aren't doing that or we observe people that don't live the way that we do and where we might have simple conversations with our kids about that, I think we need to have some of those safe, same conversations uh, with us as part of the church. So how do we deal with one another as a family, 
But how, how do we think through our own values and our own morals and the way that we want to live uh, in a world where we know lots of people live in lots of different ways? So we're going to dive into that today and try and kind of work through that tension a little bit and uh, just see what we can learn from the scriptures. Jesus, in John chapter 13, for his disciples, before he was crucified uh, and before he left them, uh, in a sense, uh, was teaching them kind of what the most important things were and what he wanted for them, what he wanted for the disciples. And in John chapter 13, there's this powerful thing that Jesus teaches. He says, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And this is powerful because he's taking all of the things that he's taught them. We might talk about doctrine, uh, the, the belief systems we have, the core values that are all really important to following Jesus. And he says, we've been going through all these. We've been walking through them. Hopefully I've been showing you, Jesus saying to them, how to live and what it looks like to really love people. And then he says, at the end of the day, when you take all of the things that you believe, all the things you believe about God and the world and other people, all the things I've taught you, here's going to be the proof. Here's how you're going to have influence in the world. Here's how people are going to know who you are, what your identity is. It's going to be the way that you love each other. And I've been trying to show you the way that God loves you so that you can live in that love and then love one another. In essence, I think this is what he's saying is our identity, who we are, our identity and our influence, how people will see us, what will be the proof of who we are, are going to be rooted in our integrity this is powerful. Here's going to be the proof. Not just your, your exposition of the scripture, but, but if, you ex, if you do that exposition of the scripture, not just the things that you've learned, not just the core values you put on the paper, not just the morality that you think you assent to, but when you take all of that together, here's going to be the proof. It's going to be your integrity, how you live that out, how you actually practice it, how you love one another. Our identity, who we are, and our influence to the people around us, is going to be rooted in our integrity. The proof will be in the pudding in whether or not we're living all of this out. We're really actually loving each other. And I think this is really, really important because for all the things we talk about the, the churches, and again, all, the, all of our uh, really important doctrines and, and statements of faith and all the things we might come up with, at the end of the day, when our integrity is questionable, our influence and our identity will be questioned in the world. When we think about how we live with the people around us in the world, when our integrity is questionable, that is, when we're not living out what Jesus plainly taught us to live, doesn't mean it's easy, but plainly taught us to live, that you are supposed to love one another and build a community that's really deeply rooted in that love, that then uh, that dictates all your other values and your morality. That's kind of the big thing, this new commandment of love. But when that integrity is questionable, that is, you're not actually living that out, then our influence and our identity, people will look at us and say, what are you bringing to the world and who are you will be questioned. And we see that all the time, don't we? When in the church we are not living out what we say we're living out, when we're not acting according to our identity, the world goes, why should we care about what you have to say? Why should we care about what you're doing? Sometimes getting, and we've talked all in this series about what it looks like to be uh, religious hypocrites and to be arrogant and to think that we have all the answers and yet not to be able to live it out. And what happens when that happens is that people are going to question our integrity and who we are, our identity and our influence is going to be in question. That it's very important, we're not going to be perfect, but it's very important for us to be keenly aware about how we're living out our faith, all the things that we believe and all the things that Jesus is calling us to, to be a loving community. 
So I want to talk about how we can live that out and, and a little bit when it comes to judgment as we finish this series today, um, how then, with, with that in mind, that it's so important how we live for our integrity, for who we are and what our influence is, how do, we, how do we deal with our problems? How do we deal when we're not living up to that standard? How do we deal with each other when we realize that there's some big problems, perhaps, in our lives and our community together? Kind of going back to the first week of this series when we talked about uh, you can't look at the speck in somebody's eye and ignore the log in your own eye, but now we want to bring that not just as individuals, but bring it to the level of a community. How do we live that out together for each other? And then how do we live in a world that's not always going to uh, live the way that we live? So there's this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that I want to bring our attention to, where uh, a church in Corinth is dealing with some of this. They're dealing with uh, living in a world where their values are different, and yet also dealing with the fact that in their community of faith, there's some major problems. And the Apostle Paul, he would go to different places like Corinth, which he did. He would establish a church. He'd get some people on board. He'd teach them how to follow Jesus, how to be disciples of Jesus. He'd set up some leadership and some structure, and then he'd move on, and he'd go to some other cities, and he'd do the same thing, planting churches all over the place. And then often he'd get reports from these churches, and then he would write back to them. And the letter, uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, are letters he's writing back to the church in Corinth as he's hearing these reports, and then, uh, and then hearing what they're going through, and writing back and saying, here's some of the stuff you got to deal with. Some of it's positive, some of it's negative, some of it's tough to hear. Uh, in this passage, it's actually, they're dealing with a big problem, and he's going, hey, you've got to solve this. This is something that you should be on. Uh, and he talks about the way that they should be judging their own community and the people outside of their community. That's what we want to key in on today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5 starts in verse 1. It says, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. Corinth is a city in the ancient world that was well known for being very sexually promiscuous. Their, uh, their, their ethic around sex was wide open. Um, it was maybe like the Las Vegas of their day. Anything goes. Uh, a lot of even the religions in Corinth um, were connected to prostitution, that you would go and you would worship a certain goddess, and, and part of that worship was prostitution. Um, that, that sexual immorality, what Christians would say is sexually immoral, was rampant in Corinth well-known. And Paul starts by saying, I can't believe the report that I'm hearing about your sexual immorality, something that even pagans don't do. You're in this city where there's, there's rampant sexual morality, and what's happening in your church is making them blush. They wouldn't even do that. I can't believe it. So then you're going, oh, tell me what they're doing. <laughs> I, I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. He's having an affair with his stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame, and you should remove this man from your fellowship or from in the midst of your place. So uh, you've got this going on, and okay, let's just, a little bit of context. Okay, there's this guy who's in this, this immoral relationship, this relationship that's going to be destructive to his family, to the wider Christian community there, something that... He, even people who, who have a very, very wide open sexual ethic are going, wow, we wouldn't even do that. This guy's in, you know, in this relationship with his stepmother. Apparently, everybody knows about it. This is not somebody who goes, oh, I got a bit of an issue. I'm, I'm struggling through it. I'm working on it. This is somebody that's wide out in the open. Everybody knows about it. Nobody's saying anything about it. Nobody's addressing it. He doesn't seem to care. It's an ongoing thing, and it's a really big deal. And Paul goes, and you guys, you guys are proud of this. You're, you're arrogant, and you got to stop and go, what are they proud of? 
What could they possibly be, be proud of? And we don't know exactly. There's a couple of guesses. One is they might be proud and arrogant thinking, Nobody's going to call us out on this. We're independent. We have our independence. Earlier in the letter in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul actually, he kind of says, as he's addressing some of their issues, he's like, do you guys think I won't come back and deal with some of these issues? And they might be just going, hey, we can do what we want to do. Nobody can call us out on stuff. Uh, We have our own authority, and it doesn't matter what's happening here. That's one potential. Another one is they might just be proud saying, hey, everybody's welcome and, and just grace abounds here and everything is, is good and you can come here no matter what you're dealing with. And maybe they're just proud that, that uh, they're very gracious people and maybe they were very gracious people. But Paul's going, hold on a second, just because you, know, you accept, every, yeah, that grace is good and we're, we're all welcomed. But in your community, and when he's addressing this, by the way, don't picture a room like this where a whole bunch of people come. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Um, you know, church in our culture oftentimes looks like this, a big room, lots of people. Uh, picture more what we call life groups. So uh, a smaller group of people in deep relationship, meeting in somebody's house. It's like you are really in close connection with this person. Everybody knows what's going on. You know what's going on. He knows what's going on. He's not sorry. He's not trying to change. It's kind of this, this big elephant in the room and you're not dealing with it. And yeah, it's great that we're gracious and everything, but, but you've got to deal with this. Paul goes, I can't believe that you're proud and you're arrogant that this is happening and nothing is being done about it. So then he says in verse 3, even though I'm not with you in person, I'm with you in the spirit. As though I were there, I have, listen to this, I have already passed judgment on this man. So remember in the last couple of weeks we started Jesus saying, judge not, don't be arrogant, don't be hypocritical. But as we kind of moved along and we moved through that hypocrisy and sort of having a humility about things, we looked at last week making wise judgments. It doesn't mean we stop and say, well, I, I have no idea if this is right or wrong. I have no idea if this is healthy or unhealthy. Paul is going, we can know this is not healthy. And I've passed judgment on this. I've, I've made a wise judgment that this should not be happening. And he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, you must call a meeting of the church I will be present with you in spirit, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed, and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. This is kind of confusing. You might read that and go, what in the world is he saying? Now, again, I don't think Paul is saying, hey, every time somebody's struggling with somebody, something or, or has sinned, you've got to kick them out of the church. I think he's saying, this is kind of a big deal. This guy's not going to change. He, he, obviously, it's out there. All this kind of stuff that I already said. You, you've got to make sure that, that you deal with this and somehow. And so he's saying, I think you actually need to remove him from your group. So imagine again, you're meeting in a small group of people, somebody's house. You're all saying, hey, we're followers of Jesus and we want to grow spiritually and we want to have healthy spiritual lives and healthy families and healthy marriages. And then imagine somebody sitting there and just go, you know, I'm having a an inappropriate relationship with my stepmom, and everybody goes, that's cool. Got any prayer requests? <laughs> what else is happening in your life? You can go, wait, whoa, whoa. Paul goes, whoa, whoa, You can't just sit here and pretend like that's not happening. And then he says, so I think you should remove him from your midst. And then you have this, this bit about handing him over to Satan. And listen, when it comes to Satan, we have a lot of uh, notions in our head. A lot of those notions of who Satan is and, and how Satan operates come from um, oftentimes popular media, TV, movies, things that we have watched. Um, but this, this line, you go, that's really weird. What is Paul saying? I think it might be helpful for us to think through Satan in the scripture. The word Satan or the Satan uh, means the accuser. And I think maybe what Paul is saying here is, hey, yeah, you've brought this guy in. Nobody's dealing with it. 
And you might think you're being very gracious, but you're not dealing with it. Perhaps you need to remove him and he needs to feel the weight of his sin. He needs to actually feel that accusation that this is not right, that you can't continue to live this way. And there, it's not retributive. It's not like so that we can punish you and so we never see you again and so that we cast you out and you're, you're an abomination to us. No, it's so, so that his sinful nature can be destroyed. So that, that part of him that is apart from God, the part of him that thinks, oh, I can just go on and, and do this. That, you know, best word maybe closest that we have to the sinful nature is thinking through the ego. So that his ego is broken down. But why? So that he's saved Because we want him to come back. Because we want him to realize, oh, this is not an acceptable behavior. I've got to stop this. But so that he'll come back. So that he'll say, oh, I realize now I can't live this way. This is destructive. This is awful. So that then he'll turn back and be saved on the day of the Lord, when the Lord returns. Is that we want him to be restored. But we can't just just pretend that it's not happening. Remember, go back to last week. We have to be able to make wise decisions and Say, this is happening in some way. If we're a bunch of people who are saying we're all committed to following Jesus and we have this deep relationship where we're meeting on a regular basis to worship and to help each other, we've got to be able to sift through and say, wait, this is not right. And again, I don't think this is Paul's prescription for every time somebody sins, kick him out of the church and all the rest of it. I think he's saying in this situation, we've got a big problem and, and, and this guy needs to feel that so that we can call him back and we can call him back into a healthy life and we can call him back into following Jesus. This is our brother. This is somebody who's part of our family and we need to make sure that, um, that we're dealing with that in a really good, healthy way. So in verse 6, he goes on, he says, your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you'll be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. So now Paul is going to uh, a metaphor. He actually mixes the metaphor a little bit here, but something that especially those who would have been come from a Jewish background would have understand. He talks about yeast and bread, and he talks about the Passover, uh, the, this Passover festival that they all celebrate. Um, if you go back to Exodus and you read about the Passover, this is the Israelites. They're in Egypt. They're slaves. Um, they, they are slave to the Egyptians and to working, and then God, through Moses, calls them out uh, and calls them to be free people, says, I'm going to lead you to a new life, a free life. You're not going to be slaves anymore. You're going to live as free people, and that's what we want you to experience, and that's the kind of freedom we want you to live in. And one of the things, uh, as they were preparing to leave, and God was going to miraculously take them out, is they said, you guys got to be ready, because God's going to miraculously take you out, and the Egyptians would follow them, but you got to be ready to go, no messing around. And one of the prescriptions was, we're going to go with unleavened bread, so no yeast in the bread, because we don't have time to wait for the bread to rise. So we're just going to do this quickly. You guys got to be ready to go, because when God shows up and says, we're leaving Egypt, you got to be ready to go. You have to be ready to leave slavery and go to freedom. Now Paul's picking up on that same metaphor, talking about Christ being our Passover lamb, uh, who's, who's sacrificed for us. He goes, in the same way, you're not, this is all through the New Testament. We get the, the metaphor that as the people of Israel were called out from slavery to Egypt, we're all called out from slavery to sin. And Paul's going there now and he's saying, you can't sit around and let the yeast rise in the dough. We got to go. We got to leave our life of sin. We got to leave the things that are holding us back, that are enslaving us, and go out into freedom. And so don't let this yeast grow up in you. This is what sin does. 
As you sit around and you let sin fester amongst you, it weaves its way through all of the dough and puffs it up. He goes, I don't want that to happen to your community. That's why you got to be careful when there's these problems to make sure you get it out. No yeast. we got to be ready to get out of the slavery of sin and go into freedom. And so when you see yourselves being pulled back into sin that's going to hold you back and that's going to enslave you and that's going to hurt you, it's going to hurt your community. We don't, we don't have time to sit around and let the bread rise. we got to celebrate this with the new bread, unleavened bread. We're not waiting around. God has called us to freedom. Let's go to freedom together. And that's how we celebrate this festival in our new lives. So Exodus chapter 12, it says, uh, again, speaking of this bread, he says, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Things were urgent. That's what he's saying. So things are urgent now. Don't just let this thing fester. I think it reminds us in all of this, it's really important that Christians over time, and none of us are perfect, but Christians over time should look more like Christ. Paul's looking back and going, this doesn't look like Christ. This doesn't look like the Jesus that I was teaching to you. And so for those of you who have committed to following Jesus, we have to help each other stay committed to our commitments. That's part of our community, and we've got to be able to make good judgments in order to do that. Because our integrity is connected to our identity and to our influence. And so if our, I, if our integrity is questionable, then our identity and our influence is going to be questioned. And it should be questioned. Verse 9, he says, When I wrote to you before... So by the way, um, like I said, Paul would plant churches, get them going, set up. Uh, then he'd, he'd go other places start another church, he would write back. Um, and he wrote, we know that he wrote other letters to the Corinthian church. We, we don't have them. They haven't survived in history. Nobody found them. Maybe one day we'll find them. Probably not. Um, we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We know that there's other letters. So Paul is writing now and he said, I wrote you another letter and you might have misunderstood something. So I want to clear it up in something else that I, I wrote to you. So when I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheap people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worship idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't eat with such people. So now Paul's coming back, he goes, okay, probably he wrote something like, you got to be careful who you're associating with. But now he writes back and he goes, oh, you've taken that to think that we can, as a community, sit over here and say, look at all these people outside of our church. Oh, they're immoral and they're greedy and they worship idols. And we got to stay away from them. We got to separate ourselves. We can't associate with them. We got to be careful not to, to condone everything that they do. And then we're here tucked away in our little community and we're kind of the good ones. This is very judgmental. We're the ones that fit in the boundaries because we're the ones that have all these things together. And Paul goes, oh, if that's what you got, you totally misunderstood. You've actually got, you've actually got it totally backwards. I didn't mean everybody else in the world. If that was the case, you'd have to leave the world. You're going to come into contact with all kinds of people who live completely different than you do, who have not agreed to your moral standard, who are not professing to follow Jesus. You're going to, you're going to come across those people every day in your work and in your relationships and in all kinds of stuff. You, you can't avoid those people. I'm not telling you to avoid those people. Jesus didn't avoid those people. Jesus invited those people in. 
I'm saying that for those of us who made a commitment to follow Jesus, if you're sitting there and you're saying, man, we've all made this commitment, and then you've got people who are very obviously in big ways not living out that commitment, you've got to do something about that. You've got to deal with that. I wasn't telling you to judge everybody in the world. I was telling you to make wise judgments within your community. To make wise judgments about how you live together. And in those relationships, when you're close to people, when you love each other the way Jesus had, to be able to make wise decisions when things don't look the way that they're supposed to look and when people aren't living out those commitments. I think this is so, so interesting because so many of us, I think, in the church, I think this is a big issue, that we expect the whole world to be more Christ-like. Realistically, we have our hands full helping Christians be more Christ-like don't we? We look out and we go, I want the whole world to look like Jesus and follow Jesus. Guess what? Not all those people have accepted Jesus. They're not committed to following Jesus. I think we have our hands full trying to help one another follow Jesus. Maybe if Christians looked more Christ-like, we'd have a little more influence. People would actually agree that we are who we said that we were. I think Paul is going, listen, You got the wrong picture if you thought you're supposed to say, we got it all together, the rest of the world. Man, the world, I hear so much. The world is terrible. Look at all these terrible things happening. And he goes, no, I wasn't telling you to look out there and judge. I was telling you to look within and make some wise judgments. It's pretty easy, right? Oh, look at the world. Oh, look at our culture. Oh, look at all the awful things. I wish the world looked more Christian. I wish Christians looked more Christian. And maybe if we were not looking at the speck in everybody else's eye, but looking at the plank in our own eye, collectively we'd say, maybe we've got enough to worry about within our own communities to help each other follow Jesus before we start to judge everybody else. So listen to what Paul says in verse 12. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. But as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Christians want the world to be more Christ-like, but in reality, we have our hands full helping Christians become more like Christ. Paul says, it's not my responsibility. It's none of my business, some translation. It's not my business to judge outsiders. But it certainly is our responsibility to judge those inside the church. What business of ours to judge outsiders? Um, What does this look like? I think one of the primary ways that we show that we're judgmental towards outsiders, I'm just thinking of like practically an example, what would this look like? I was trying to think, how do we do this? And sometimes how do we kind of shroud it in religious language? One of the primary ways that I think we show that we're judgmental towards outsiders is we withhold love because we don't want to condone their behavior. Have you ever done that? You've ever thought that? I've thought that. If I'm too loving to someone, if I'm too accepting of them, if I'm too gracious, if, if, if I just hang out with them and spend time with them, they're going to think I agree with their lifestyle. They're, they think I'm going to agree with all their decisions. They're going to think I'm, I'm, I'm good with all of it. And so here's what oftentimes we do. We withhold love so that we can judge. To be honest, I'm withholding love because I want you to know that I'm judging you, that I don't agree with what you do. And what Paul is actually teaching us when it comes to people outside of the church is you actually need to withhold judgment so that you can love them. That's what you've been called to do. 
Flip side is here for, for us, he's saying, I'm not telling you to withhold judgment for each other in a humble way, in, in, in a way where you're checking yourself first, all this stuff in the first few weeks of the series, but hold on a second. I didn't call you to judge other people and hold back on your love, withhold your love. Actually, you're supposed to love those people. Here, one time I was talking to an older gentleman. He's a grandfather. His grandkids were grown up. They were adults. And he called me and he said, I'm really struggling with my granddaughter. I don't know how to relate to her anymore. I don't know if I can relate to her anymore. So, well, tell me about it. And she had become an adult, making decisions that he, he disagreed with. She did not um, profess to be a Christian. He was a Christian, had been his entire life. Uh, he said, I'm just struggling. And I'm struggling to the point where she's doing certain things. And I don't know if I can, I don't even know if I can spend time with her anymore. It's just, we're, we're so far apart and I disagree and I don't want her to think I condone with the things she's doing. I don't like the relationship she's in. I don't like the choices she's making. I don't like the direction of her life. And I remember saying, I, you know, let me ask you this. Do you think she knows about your opinions? Do you think she knows your opinions of, of, her, of her life and her decisions? Do you think she knows your value system and all that? And she goes, absolutely, I've made that clear. I always make that clear, uh, you know, what I think. is. And I go, I bet you you're right. I bet you she knows all of your opinions about her life. I think what she needs to know now is that you'll love her anyway. Conversation ended. I didn't know how that would go. I didn't know how he would expect it. About six months later, he called me back and he said, you remember the conversation we had? And I said, yeah, I remember that conversation. How's it been going? How's it going with your grandfather? And I could hear his voice cracking on the other end. And he said, I took that. And at first I hated hearing that. And then I realized, maybe you're right. And so I started just trying to love her the way that I didn't want to condone her, her behavior, her lifestyle, all the things that she was doing, but I just broke that down. We invited her over. We started spending more time with her. He said, that one thing has drastically changed our relationship for the better. Did, did her life completely transform? Did she become a Christian? I don't know. But their relationship was restored. They came back to a loving place. Did he agree with everything she was doing and all the decisions? No. But all of a sudden, they could come back and be family together. We withhold love so that we can judge. But what if we withheld judgment so that we could love? Because what business is it ours to judge people outside of the church? What business is it ours to try and hold people to a moral standard that they have not accepted, that they have not agreed to be held to? And how dare we hold them to a standard that we're not even holding one another to who have agreed to that kind of moral standard to live in a certain way? Paul says, I, you know, I got to leave, I got to leave that judgment up to God. i that's it, you know, and to trust. God's going to be a better judge than me. God knows their heart. God knows where they are. God knows what they need and don't need. We'll leave that up to them. We can take care of us, though. A couple of ways I just want to share um, from our Anabaptist perspective. When we talk about this identity and our influence and who we are, uh, as a denomination background, one of the, the main um, streams into who we are is an Anabaptist background. Um, these people who are so committed to following Jesus, the plain teaching of Jesus and trying to put that into practice. And when it comes to stuff like this, how we treat the other people outside of the church, people who aren't uh, part of our community of faith, uh, the Anabaptists, I think, teach us a couple of really good things. And I just want to point out a couple of them as we think about our application on, on who we judge and who we don't judge. Here's a couple of things. Our Anabaptist ancestors insisted that our influence comes from our identity, from who we are. So one of the things that the Anabaptists were really big on, are really big on, is what happens in the church is more powerful than what happens anywhere else. More, ha more powerful than what happens in Ottawa uh, or Toronto with our politicians, uh, politically, all this, you know, different social groups. Uh, they said what, what's so powerful is that the church 
is the church, the people following Jesus. This is where God is going to do incredible things. And as much as we would look out into the world and say, wow, I wish that the political systems aligned with all of my values. I wish that the, the, the social current of our culture aligned with all of our values. They would say, yeah, but realistically, that oftentimes does not happen. And yet, what really is powerful, what really is going to help Christians and followers of Jesus have any influence on the world in a positive way, it's going to come from us being the church and us focusing not on trying to make the entire world more Christian, but trying to be more Christian ourselves. This is where the Spirit of God is going to empower His work. Earlier, just the chapter before 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that we uh, just looked at, Paul said, the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk, it is living by God's power. I love that. We're not here just to talk about what could be, but we live it out, and that's where the power of God is working through us, that our influence will come from us living out our identity. And then the second thing is our influence depends on our integrity. So our integrity, for many Anabaptists, is our apologetic is how we share Christ. And that doesn't mean we don't share Jesus with our words. We don't tell people uh, about Jesus and, and what's in the Bible, the death, all of that stuff. But what gives that power and what would, what would influence people, what, what would give people a reason to say, I actually want to listen to what you have to say. Our apologetic is our integrity. Our influence depends on our integrity. And when our integrity is questionable, it will be questioned as it should be. Again, it doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean we're always going to be perfect. We're going to have times where we mess up and we make mistakes. It doesn't mean we're not gracious or humble. Of course we are. But it also means we have to look around and be willing to say, when something's wrong, we need to address it. We need to uh, figure out a better way forward because our identity and our influence are rooted in our integrity. So important to keep it. So we've finished this series uh, here, come to the end of it. I want to leave you with two questions. Uh, again, we've talked about um, when we're not supposed to judge, talked about that process of becoming humble, looking at our own sins, looking at our own faults, making sure we're looking at the log in our own eye, not the speck in other people's eyes. We talked about what it looks like to be religious hypocrites, which is so easy for us to do, to be arrogant and to think we have all the answers, and then to expect everybody else to do what we tell them to do, even when we're not doing it. We talked about wise judgments and how we're supposed to humbly also still be able to acknowledge uh, what's good and what's not, and what's healthy and what's not, and to be able to address it. And today, make sure that we know when, when we're dealing with outsiders, oftentimes we try and withhold love so that we can judge, but really what, what Paul's telling us and what God is telling us is to withhold judgment so that we can love while within we're making sure we're dealing with our own problems. So as we come to the, the end of this series, I just want to leave you in closing with two questions to wrap up this series. Simply this, are you withholding love where you need to love? Are people who are saying, well, I don't want them to think that I condone them. I, oh, I, can't, I can't really go that far. I can't love them that much. Are there people you're holding back, you're withholding love where actually you need to express love? And then the flip side, are you withholding judgment where you need to make wise judgments? Are there places where maybe we come into a place where we actually do have those deep, good relationships, where we come together with people who have made similar commitments and where we'd say, well, we can't really get into that. We can't go deep. We can't call people out. We can't talk about that. Where we are withholding judgment, we're really not in an arrogant way, not in a hypocritical way, but we need to make wise judgments. And in answering those two questions, uh, there's just a need for so much wisdom and humility uh, and, and careful introspection. And so let's pray that God would give us those things now. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for this powerful teaching that Jesus taught us to judge not, and yet also that, that balance to saying we still need to make wise judgments. 
I know for so many of us, we've acknowledged in these last few weeks how easy it is, it is for us to be judgmental. So we ask that you would continue to work on our hearts, that you would help us to root out that um, arrogance, the hypocrisy, rid us of those things, root us in grace. God, also give us wisdom to make wise judgments, to turn away from our sin, and to help each other to stay committed to the commitments we've made to Christ. We pray that as many of us just long for the world to look more like Jesus, that you would help us to start uh, by helping our community to look more like Jesus. And there we ask that your kingdom would grow and be strengthened, and that your will would be done in our lives and in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.